we, can study, we continue in our study of the parables. In Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus, we find that near the end of chapter 9, everything is from that point on directed toward Jerusalem. In chapter 13, verse 22, we read, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So from chapter 10 on, uh, Jesus is headed toward his death. The, the closer he got to Jerusalem, we find that Jesus had increasing contact with Jerusalem's religious leadership. No doubt they had heard about him. They knew of his reputation as a popular teacher. They knew that he did not have formal learning or education as they did. And they knew that he questioned authorities. But they were much more than curious about this man. I think they were apprehensive. In our study of the parables, we have seen that the context within which they are given is important. That is true of our parable today. In fact, today we have sort of a a narrow context, if you wish, or a primary and a secondary context within which the parable is spoken. The passage begins with what I would call the secondary context here in Luke chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse number one. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. But here we find a familiar scenario. It is the Sabbath day and Jesus is being carefully watched. And by that, I think we should take it to mean that they're trying to find something out, something wrong that he's going to do. There is someone who is in need. There is a man who has an illness. But this person who is in need is being used by his the leaders, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, as bait. They want to see if they can somehow trap Jesus in doing something that they believe he should not do. But before Jesus heals this man, and we see this time and time again, he asks the people, he asks the experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They don't answer him because it's sort of a trick question for them. If they say no, that would seem to be cruel. Why would you not heal somebody if you could on the Sabbath? If they say yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, that would violate their own restrictions that they've placed on the Sabbath day. I do find it interesting that in the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 13, After Jesus had healed a woman on the Sabbath, we read this in verse 14 of chapter 13, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? 
It's, it's almost comical that the man says, yeah, I know this guy can heal, but hey, there's six days a week where he can work. Don't come to be healed on the Sabbath. Well, here's this man in chapter 14 in the Pharisee's house. Is Jesus going to heal him? Should he heal him, Jesus asked. Well, Jesus heals the man. I was struck as I was preparing my notes how quickly we go over that. Yes, Jesus healed the man. Um, as though it's not the significant part of the story. Um, I think if we were that man, that would be the important part of the story. That in fact Jesus had healed him and taken care of his disease. Jesus now again asks a question. If any of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And the answer is obvious. The answer is yes. So that's sort of the secondary context. Now we come to the primary context, which has already been mentioned. He is in the house of a Pharisee. He is there for a meal. Um, And here we see Jesus doing what he does best, and that is telling stories. And the setting seems ideal for the story or the parable he wants to tell. While we are told in verse number 7 that Jesus told this parable, I actually see the parable beginning in verse number 15. First, Jesus speaks of kingdom etiquette when it comes to being a guest at a meal. The principle is set forth in verse number 11. If you look at verse number 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's go back to verse number seven. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For who, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I would say in this passage, this is the most accessible part. It makes sense. It's better to start at a lower position and be brought up than to start at a high position and to be brought down. It's better to be humble than humiliated. Seems clear enough. But Jesus is not finished. Humility is, in fact, a kingdom virtue, but it is not to stand alone. It is to be accompanied by generosity. So Jesus continues. If you look at verse number 12, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The first part, the verses 7 through 11, on humility, that makes sense. And I would say, humanly speaking, that seems doable. Yeah, I think I can do that. I can start at a lower position and allow myself to be brought up rather than to start at a high position and allow myself to be humiliated. The second one, I think, is a lot more difficult. I don't know about you, but if I have a meal 
I want to invite my friends and relatives. Well, some of them. Um, I don't really have rich neighbors. Um, and I like it when my friends and relatives invite me, for the most part. But the idea of having a banquet versus a luncheon or dinner, I don't know if you caught that um, in verse number 12. The ESV has dinner and banquet and then feast. So he's making a, a contrast between sort of an average meal and some, you know, someone who's really putting on a spread and it's really uh, a big occasion. It is to this above average occasion when you really put on a spread that Jesus tells his host that they are to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And the result is you will be blessed. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What Jesus says here is really seems to strike a chord with one of the listeners there, one of the people there. And so verse number 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. My first reaction, I have to tell you when I read this, I'm preparing for this, is that, oh, this man is a Pharisee. And so Jesus had talked about the resurrection of the righteous and so the Pharisees, well, he's on our side because he believes in the resurrection versus the Sadducees who denied it. But I don't think that's what this man was excited about. It was, in fact, the feast in the kingdom of God. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it is this, this notion of the feast in the kingdom of God that leads to the parable of the great banquet. In the Old Testament, a great banquet was one of the images that was used to communicate Israel's future with God. We would call it in heaven or in the eternal state. For the Jews, they simply saw it as something in the future. That in the future, there would be this great meal and there would be this intimate communion between Israel and her God. Let me read to you just one passage that speaks of this. Isaiah 25 On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. The first part about the aged wine and all that, the banquet, may seem unfamiliar to us. But the last part, in fact, does sound very familiar, that he will wipe away the tears from all faces. We hear this again in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21.4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Thus, as Revelation is written, it points to the end of human history as ending, in fact, with a great banquet in which God will wipe away all of our tears. We will be in his eternal presence. The old order has passed away. And how do we know that the new order has come? There will be this great feast. It's in chapter 19 of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Anyway, what this man has said is, this is great. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
opens the door for Jesus to speak this parable. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. The time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here's the story. The setting is a planned great banquet. In contrast to a luncheon, a supper, a dinner, or a banquet, this is a great banquet. And what is suggested um, is that what happens at this great banquet is not simply for the food. Yes, there's going to be great food. It's a great banquet. But there's something much more than that. And I think the people to whom Jesus was speaking understood what he was saying. Such an occasion establishes or reinforces your position in the community. In other words, where you are put, where you sit in this great banquet, tells everyone your status in the community. That's one of the great things about being the host. You get to tell people where to sit. And you can say to someone who you think should be in a high position, here, come sit up here with me. Or someone you think is in a lower position, you can go back and sit at the table at the back of the room. Such occasions in the the ancient world were very common as establishing who was who. This is what made you who you were in the community. Meals weren't always about food, but they always had social implications. It is in a banquet that your position of honor or your position of shame is assigned. It is a way that you organize society. So that when you have, let's say you're inviting 50 people from your neighborhood. The way you seat them says to them who you think is important and who you think is not important. Now, we're Americans and so usually, unless it's a really formal occasion, we let people sit wherever they want. Okay, So they get to decide. But in the ancient world, no. It is the host who says, this is the way society is organized. These are the important people. They're at the front table. And these are the people who are not so important, maybe in the middle. And these people are insignificant. They'll be at the back of the room. I think this gives us insight into how this whole conversation began. When Jesus talked about the fact that when you go to a a meal, don't go to the head, don't go to the position of honor, because then the host might in fact humiliate you and put you in a place of shame. 
It is the host who determines who sits where. You don't decide. You don't say, well, I'm an important person. I'll sit where I want. This is something that the host does. Something else about this banquet that you may not have noticed, and I must confess that I didn't initially, is that there are two invitations to this banquet. I don't know if you caught that. The first invitation informs the invitee of the coming event and seeks, I guess, an initial RSVP. This is what we find in verse number 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. But then there's a second invitation that is a reminder, and it tells the guests that everything is ready, that now is the time to come. This is what we find in verse number 17. The time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. I think for us, this may seem a bit strange, and we may struggle here, because I think, if nothing else, we view time differently. We talked about this before, that two words in Greek, chronos, from which we get chronology, and kairos. Uh, chronos is very much about a specific time, like it's 12.15, okay? Kairos is about the event. Um, for us, we think very much in terms of chronos. You know, you've invited me to eat. Uh, tell me what time it is, and I'll be there at that time. I'll show up. By this, I think we put more emphasis on the time of the event than we do on the event itself. In this story, the people are told there's going to be a banquet. I think they're probably given a general idea of when it's going to happen, but apparently not specific enough because now someone has to go out and say, okay, now is time. Things are ready. You can come for the banquet. By the way, I think the closest analogy that we have to this in our culture with regard to time is a wedding. That... um, you know, you, you send out the invitations and you tell people this is when the wedding is going to start. But we also have a general sense that it's not going to start on time because the bride is usually late and we're all going to wait for the bride. You know, and that's but that's fine, because what is more important when a wedding starts or the fact of the wedding itself? It is the event that is important. So we don't mind waiting. The chronos of it is not more important. The kairos is what we're looking at, the event of the wedding itself. And this is what we find here in the banquet. So he sends out the initial invitation, people, RSVP. And then he sends out his servant to say, okay, everything is now ready. It's time to show up. I think at this point, the listeners are ready to hear more about this great banquet. But the parable takes a turn, I think one that they did not expect. At least three individuals beg off, each one making an excuse for not attending this great banquet. I think on the face of it, to us who live in 21st century America, the excuses seem fairly reasonable. But in that culture, what they do is inexcusable. The first excuse is this. I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. That's what one person calls the real estate excuse. In that culture, in the ancient world, enormous care was taken in buying and exchanging land. In Jewish culture, land had a legacy as belonging to a family and therefore could not be sold casually. Land was a family's identity. 
And as we see in the Old Testament, oftentimes places were named. Even trees were named because they were seen as having great significance. No villager, no first century Palestinian would buy a piece of land without having seen it. Village land and the history of its owners are a built-in part of village life. By the way, this explains why there's so much conflict even today over land in the Middle East. All this to say that this excuse is not plausible. You see, the guest who is invited in this parable is not a Westerner. He is not an American who would make a quick purchase of land through an agent not having seen the land, but he buys the land for investment. That's something that people simply did not do in the first century. The guest who has been invited would only buy land after he had investigated it carefully, after he had walked over it, that he knows every part of it totally. And then he would begin to bargain with the person who owned the land. This bargaining might take days or even weeks. It is impossible that someone in Jesus' day would buy a piece of land not having seen it. And so this excuse is an insult to the host. He says, you think I'm stupid? If you don't want to come, say you don't want to come. But to make up a lie, a lame excuse, and to say, no, I can't come because I bought some land and I haven't seen it yet and I want to go over and look at it, make sure that it's a good deal. No honorable guest would ever act in such a way. This guest has disrespected the host. The second excuse we'll call the plowing excuse. I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. This excuse is even more outrageous than the first. To begin with, buying five yoke of oxen involves a considerable amount of money. In fact, it's, I would say, beyond the reach of most people in first century Palestine. And then there are various questions that need to be answered. Can they pull the plow? Can they work together? Are they, in fact, in good health? I mean, the value of these ten oxen, five yoke of oxen, is their ability to pull a plow and to pull it together successfully and to do the work that needs to be done. No sane person would buy these oxen, would spend so much money without trying them out. Now, if the guest had said, I'm thinking of buying five yoke of oxen, and the man selling them to me today is sort of putting on a demonstration, he's plowing his field, and so I want to go and observe them and to make sure that they, you know, that they can do what he says they can, that would have made more sense. But this guest says he has already bought them without having seen them. I think perhaps the closest analogy that in our culture today would be for someone to say, I can't come to the banquet because I've just purchased a used car, an expensive car, over the phone. I need to go see if the car will start. Well, come on. I mean, unless you're just you know, rolling in money, no one would do this. And I think people who have money have money because they're very careful. and They would not buy something sight unseen. This guest has also dishonored the host. 
There can be no circumstance in that society in which an animal or animals comes before an obligation to attend a prepared banquet. The man who had agreed to attend the banquet is now saying no. And no honorable guest in first century Palestine would act like this. The host has been disrespected. The third excuse we might identify with on some level, I just got married so I can't come. But there's something here. Did you notice that the first two men, at the end of their excuse, they somewhat respectfully said, please excuse me. We don't hear this at all in this third excuse. Now, we can safely assume that this man wasn't at a wedding banquet. He wasn't getting married then, because I think that would have been, you know, it's like you're invited to this banquet. Oh, I can't because I'm getting married. I think arrangements would have been made. Instead, the third guest uses his wife as his excuse for not doing what he promised and for not attending the banquet. The way that this is written, his language is abrupt. It is shocking. It is rude. It's unacceptable. No honorable guest in first century Palestine would act like this. The host has been disrespected by his guest. So what is he to do? If you can imagine, and this is this is projecting backwards, but if you can imagine that this host has worked with his servants and they've created a seating chart. And the seating chart with full of cultural baggage, it's saying, okay, these are the important people. We want you know the important people up at the front tables, and then as you know, you sort of work your way down in society, that's how we will seat the people. And suddenly, three people who apparently were prominent, who are going to be there, are like, no, nah, we're not going to show up. So what do you do? Do you just sort of bump everybody up and say, okay, those guys aren't coming, so we'll just sort of adjust upward. That is not what this host does. What he does is he throws out the seating chart. In a culture in which the banquet said who was important, these people who were inside, you may remember last week, how that Jesus was hanging out with uh, tax collectors and sinners. He was going beyond the boundaries, and so the Jews were upset with him. This host says, forget the boundaries. The people I had invited aren't going to show up. Let us turn society upside down. Let us give honor to those who are considered unhonorable, those who are the lower ones in society. Those who are on the outside will now be on the inside. Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. These are not normally people who are invited to great banquets. And now they are the guests, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Now, this may, we may find this somewhat offensive. It's talking about the handicapped people and that, yeah, normally we wouldn't invite them, but hey, let's, let's bring them in. But in that society, such people were lived on the margins of society. They were deemed as socially low, the rejects, if you wish, of society. Such people would never get an invitation to a great banquet. But now they are his honored guests. But the boundaries are extended even farther because, as we read in verse number 22, Sir, the servant said, 
what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Interestingly, the people in the roads and the country lanes are simply referred to as them. Uh, We're not told about their status, if they are physically handicapped. But the implication is that socially they are on the outside. Some have even suggested that these people may be Gentiles. Horrors. You're not only, I mean, you've turned society completely upside down. The people who are honored guests refuse to come, fine. Let us turn society upside down and bring those who normally are dishonored. It is at the end of the parable that Jesus makes this quite personal. And we don't catch it in English because for us in English, you could be you singular or you plural. Um, In the last verse, in verse number 24, the you is plural. I tell you, the listeners, Jesus is speaking to those who are listening to this parable in the Pharisee's house. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This isn't the host speaking in the parable. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus came into the world to announce the messianic banquet that God was calling his people to himself. He has sent the kinsman redeemer, a redeemer to bring his people out of bondage and to bring them back to God. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus preached. God's doing it. And what do we find happening? Those that we would think are at the top of society in the seating chart, the Pharisees, the experts of the law, the Sadducees, they don't accept it. And what Jesus does is he turns things upside down. And so he hangs out with tax collectors. He hangs out with sinners because they will listen to the good news. They will not make excuses. Jesus has preached the gospel of the good news, the kingdom of God. Will people accept the invitation or will they make excuses? The reality is in the life of Jesus, those who saw themselves themselves as insiders end up being outsiders. Now, think a moment. As we've gone through this series thus far in parables, we've seen that Jesus' parables are theocentric. That is, They are about God. Their purpose is to change behavior and to create disciples. But how do you do that? Do you give people a list of do's and don'ts? This is what you're supposed to do in order to be a good disciple. What Jesus does in these parables is tell them, this is who God is. This is what God's kingdom is like. And this is the new reality that God is seeking to bring into his creation. I think we may miss this as as we are listeners. So, for example, uh, in this parable, the parable of the great banquet, I think I'd have to say every sermon I've ever heard preached on this focused on the men who made excuses. 
and you know, with rather disparaging language, you know, what dirtbags these people are, that they had promised to come and they don't come, and what an example this is of our rebellion against God, that God has invited us and we don't come. So we focus on the, the guests who make excuses, but if a parable is theocentric, if it's telling us about God and God's kingdom, then I think perhaps we need to change our focus. I don't think that's the point of the sermon, of the parable. In telling the story, Jesus emphasizes the call, the invitation. From verses 7 to 24, we find the word in Greek for call or invite used 12 times. This is what is emphasized. The host calls. The host invites. And the host will say, this is where you're going to sit. He is the one who invites the guest to the party. Thus, he establishes the pecking order in society, who gets the best seats and who doesn't. And when the guest refused to come, he turns things upside down. The host, in this parable, represents God, is the one who reaches outside social boundaries. And he brings in the sinners as his honored guests. The people who should have known better, the people who know Torah, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the Sadducees, all these people, they should have stampeded toward Jesus. They hear the invitation, but that's not what happens. Instead, they make excuses. Who's this guy? It's a provincial. He's from Galilee, out in the sticks. He doesn't have the education we do. He hasn't got the degrees that we do. We do not like what this man has to say. In this parable, we learn about who God is, what, what God's kingdom is like, and the reality, the new reality that God seeks to establish on earth. God is the one who is in charge. We cannot have the kingdom of God on our own terms. That's what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted Jesus to come in line with their teaching. And instead, the kingdom of God is breaking out in their midst, and they will have none of it. It's a wonderful parable. It's a wonderful story of God's grace. And in fact, what we find in the next chapter, we looked at last week, the parable of the lost sheep, and of the lost coin, and of the lost son. Spoken in the context of why are you hanging out with people who are outside? Why are you going against social convention? There's one New Testament scholar who has put forward a theory that the reason Jesus was crucified was because he ate with sinners. He broke social convention. In that world, who you ate with told people who you were. And here is this great teacher this man who has people following him, who heals the sick. And what does he do? He sullies himself by eating with sinners. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees could not stand this. We must kill such a person. But what we hear from Jesus is grace. Over and over again. Okay, the religious people don't want to join? Fine. God comes out and invites us and calls us. 
I must confess, many of you are like me. I was raised in a Christian home. And so I tend not to think of myself as someone outside, you know, I'm an insider. My dad was a pastor. But the reality is, as children of Adam, we are outside the fold. And Jesus came into the world to bring us into the fold. The invitation of grace, however, brings with it demands. We find this in the parable of the great banquet as Matthew records it. If you want to, you can turn to Matthew 22. I'll read this in closing. Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, those, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite the banquet, to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. At this point, well, it's, it's very similar to what we just read, except we didn't have servants being killed. Um, but we have people who are invited and, and make excuses and, and choose not to go. But now the parable takes a different turn in Matthew's account. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. The Lord willing, we will look at this parable next Sunday. But today, as we close, we need to be reminded of who God is, that he is the one who calls, who invites He is the one who is gracious and he says, everything is now ready. It's ready. And it's time to come. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that we struggle because we see ourselves as insiders. Many of us were raised in Christian homes. We would freely confess that we have sinned, but we don't necessarily see ourselves as sinners. But we are. And you and your grace called us. You invited us. You've called us to the great banquet to be your people. How gracious you are. How wonderful is your kingdom. Everything is now ready. And in your kingdom... Humility and generosity are to mark our lives. You are the one who decides who sits where. 
You are the one who gives honor. You are the one who has prepared everything. We thank you for your graciousness and for calling us to be your people. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you, that you have remembered us, you have gathered us, you have fed us. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. We do pray for Dan and Lonnie as they travel this week that you would give them safety as they travel, but we also pray for their safety at home. Here of these home invasions in Walnut, um, watch over them and keep them safe. And the same for each of us as we walk through the world this coming week. May we have a sense of your presence with us every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.